Gateway, happy Sunday to you. Uh, a couple of things here on the front end, just by way of housekeeping and uh, kind of keeping all of us together in step as we continue to open up with respect to COVID and precautions in and around that. Uh, you know, we're continuing to try the best that we know how to live in accordance with our values to be a community of honor and hospitality. And so as such, our in-person gatherings, they are going at the Come and Go Theater downtown Des Moines. Uh, we recommend masks is optional in that space. Uh, Gateway Kids is open for essentially, um, like if you're toddlers or crawlers and stuff all the way up to grade two. And uh, it just it's this past week was the the first week that we had those things going on, and uh, it's just a joy to to see, man, like people coming together in the name of Jesus to not just exalt His name, but to be reminded of of what does it mean to be truly human, to pursue His presence, and that that is our heart's ambition here at the Gateway Church is. Uh, to see it here in Des Moines as it is in heaven. And if you didn't know, uh, there's some disparity going on there. And we, the church, are the social body that is invited, indeed, um, like called by God in Christ to participate in that renewal. And so that is our aim. We want to take little steps to move into that. And so to that end, I just want to draw our attention to two things, uh, just to, to keep our minds tuned in on it. On June 20, uh, our a number of people in our community have faithfully engaged with JAPA. Uh, JAPA is an organization in Des Moines that serves people who live without shelter, and they try to el eliminate uh, homelessness in the state, and they're centered here in Des Moines. There's some routes that go around. Essentially, this means there's some people who get in some cars, <laughs> and they put some goods and some foods in back of their car, and they go on specific routes to some of the camps of people who live without shelter in and around our city. Uh, they see them. They call them out by name, they have conversations, they help to meet some of those tangible needs. If that's something that you want to get connected into, you have more interest in it, you can connect with us at info at thegatewaychurch.com. And respectively, uh, a handful of weeks ago, uh, a good friend of ours, Moses, came and he um, from Table Church came and just shared uh, what Table Church and Cottage Grove have been working on here over these past 16 months, this little thing called Rise Up that's a, a tutoring, it's an educational enrichment program uh, with students at Edmonds Elementary. And so we have just begun conversations. A handful of people in our community are, are beginning to step into that tutoring spaces, math and reading. And so I just want to extend that invitation as well. We've uh, dropped some of that information in the weekly. And so if you are not signed up for that, I would encourage you to sign up just to, that, that's kind of like the 30,000 foot glance at what's going on in our community and, and how we hope to take incremental steps towards actually living out God's renewal here in Des Moines. And so sometimes, man, I'm just reminded that pace is not what I want it to be. I like want it here and now. Um, it change takes time. It takes time for us to receive that in ourselves and then to embody it in our community. And so we're, we want to faithfully take those steps and so have small and incremental d deposits is better than big and flashy things all at once. And so that's our, that's our hope is to have a, a urgent but sustainable pace in all of this. And, and so to that end, you know, we're here in this little series on emotional health and the way of Jesus. 
and to sustain a pace where there's a sense of urgency and um, and yet we also want to just recognize our capacity, the limits in our lives. We, we want to just say that, man, how we feel in it matters. Like we ultimately don't bow to our feelings and yet we want to learn to understand those things that are going on in us, to notice them, to name them, to attend to them in love. And so we're entering in to this whole series over the summer, and I just am so grateful to be in it. And today we're, we're looking at, at brokenness and vulnerability. And as I was uh, getting into this teaching, I came across this, this story. And, you know, it's I didn't grow up singing hymns or listening to a bunch of sermons on repeat or like grow, I didn't grow up in churchianity, I guess you could say. And so I'll come across some bit of history from the church and I'll think it's like my mind is blown. I'll think it's fascinating. And then I'll find out that what's new to me is not new to you. Like a, a number of people in our community have been following Jesus for a long, long time, like from the womb kind of thing. <laughs> and so I share this information and they're like, oh yeah, I knew about that. And I was like, I had no idea. So uh, today is one of those moments where we get to share in uh, me encountering something for the very first time. Perhaps it's old for you, but it is this uh, the story of John Newton and this song that we all know, I think, pretty well, even if you're a follower of Jesus or not, of Amazing Grace. And this song is essentially John Newton's like poetic reflection on God's capacity to rescue a wretch from within their wretchedness. And uh, Newton is, he's not criticizing or being critical of wretches outside. It's not an observation of others. It's more of a, a look inside of himself, this long reflection on his own life. And what struck me when reflecting on Newton's story in this song, Amazing Grace, that kind of overshadows his life was how much weight this song, like how much theological weight it carries for followers of Jesus, especially um, the, like the stream of Christianity we find ourselves swimming in. So I've grown accustomed to these spectacular conversion stories. It, it's the stories where a person is brought up on a stage or there's a video made, well, you know, like just scored with beautiful music. You're crying halfway through. It's somebody who lived a life that was defined uh, by, goodness, I don't know, things that basically degradate, break down their body. So they would say things, I was addicted to X, Y, or Z, and then I met Jesus, and breakthrough. The chains were gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. You know, it's like, and so you break out in a song, and like those stories seem to be told to the tune of Amazing Grace. And to be sure, stories of liberation, of, of God's of God's power breaking in and, and bringing freedom and bondage from past patterns of sin and social environmental oppression. Like those are beautiful and biblical stories. And Lord willing, we will have stories like that at the Gateway Church for generations to come. It is a sincere prayer of mine that we would have that type of vibrant new life in Jesus breaking out in our midst. And I've, I've come to find that stories such as these, when they're held up high, distort reality. See, this is not the type of stories that many of us <laughs> live out of. Here's what I mean. I think of, of, of John Newton specifically. He was a bit wily. 
And what I mean by that, heavy drinker as he was young, kind of a vagrant, and uh, he would often find it to be a sport to challenge people's faith. He's a bit of an instigator, so he would upset their belief in God and Jesus, and he would stand as an obstacle to faith. And he regularly faced these brushes with death. There's this one moment where he's bucked from a horse and is, um, I, I don't recall the uh, space, like was it inches or feet or whatever, but he almost is impaled by these poles. And on another occasion, he's set to go out with some of his friends, his um, like a group of people, and they're gonna go do a tour of a warship. And you're thinking, gosh, they're doing tours of warships. Where are they at? Well, this is Britain. This is the, the early part of the 18th century, so early 1700s. And so he's there on shore and he's watching his friends kind of go out on this vessel to, the, to tour this warship. And the vessel turns over and everyone ends up drowning in that incident. And moments like these, these brushes with death, many of them that Newton had, he would credit to God's miraculous grace. And then just as soon as he did that, he would continue to live the life, that wily life that he'd lived all along. And eventually Newton was forced into the service of the Royal Navy, but that kind of wily life he lived was deep in his bones and he deserted. Eventually, he got like a bunch of lashes and then was traded because I don't know, I don't know why I'm just reading his biography. And so he's traded onto another vessel for another worker. So he essentially becomes this like servant on a ship carrying enslaved Africans. And this becomes woven into the fabric of Newton's life where he is a seaman on these types of vessels. And it's in this season that Newton came to acknowledge God's grace and then take these incremental steps to trust him. One such occasion is this mighty storm comes and as he's like stepping down into the bowels of the ship to take his leave from a post, the person who steps into that is swept away and out to sea and dies. Another occasion, there's a mighty storm and like praying for deliverance and, um, you know, like, luggage or something on the ship lodges the hole and they're saved and these things. So, so Newton begins to take these incremental steps towards actually trusting God. And this is, this is the moment then where Newton, he is describing in that song, Amazing Grace, the hour he first believed. And it's, it's this type of testimony, Newton's type of testimony up until this point that we hold up to see. But again, this distorts reality a bit because this is not the full story that informs that song. See, Newton's hymn, it does seem to root itself in these moments of miraculous deliverance for sure. And yet it's the rest of Newton's life that gives that, that depth and substance to that song, the thing that kind of strikes our hearts when we sing it together corporately. And you might think that uh, when he encounters God's miraculous intervention, uh, that uh, faith in Jesus would compel him to leave the practice of um, trading in humans. Instead, Newton continued to enslave people and to traffic in that. The difference would be that at this juncture on the ships that he captained, uh, he would treat enslaved people with dignity. So... That seems kind of like an oxymoron. I, I get the tension there, but uh, essentially the torture and the rape would be uh, banned on his ships. See, this whole thing, I, I share this story because 
It is indeed God's grace that creates space for our rescue and our continual need of rescuing. Grace didn't just rest on Newton at sea. It didn't just miraculously intervene. It it continued to beckon and call and convict the whole of his life. Grace held the brokenness of John Newton, and, and it can hold ours too. Grace can actually be the vessel upon which we are delivered and continue to be delivered. Newton eventually suffered a stroke that brought him off of the seas, and eventually he found himself being ordained as an Anglican minister. And he he made a statement some years later that, that goes like this in an essay he wrote. I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders as he thinks about the African slave trade. See, this song, Amazing Grace, it is a song of miraculous intervention, and it is a song of God's persevering grace. That is what's so amazing about it, is it bears with us. Like, it's clear that Newton lived with brokenness. The song is is like, to to call yourself a wretch, I mean, says as much, but... That clarity, the the wretchedness, the brokenness becomes clear through his vulnerability. An essay on the African slave trade or um, a song about the like African slave trader titled Amazing Grace, like those are the places where we see Newton be vulnerable to expose his brokenness because that's also the place of healing with Jesus. See, brokenness and vulnerability, they go together hand in glove. And what I've come to see as I've just reflected on emotional health and the way of Jesus, I'm by no means an expert, I'm in this with you, <laughs> is that this, is, this series, it's less of a series about being all up in our feelings, and this is more of a moment where we're, we're hopeful to shift the culture of this community. And change can indeed be challenging because we are the ones who must receive and then enter into that change. Means that our like our heart postures will need to be changed in some areas. They'll they'll need some renovation, if you will. And yet to be a people who notice, name, and attend to and love the things going on in and around us is to be a people who embrace brokenness and live in vulnerability. In other words, this thing, this teaching on brokenness and vulnerability, this is about learning to live the story of Jesus here and now. And what follows is it's not the definitive or exhaustive teaching or explanation on how we do this, but it is a way. And if we trust that that we are actually loved by God in Christ, which we wholeheartedly affirm that we are, because as we situate ourselves in the scriptures, this is what resonates forth, is that we who belong to Jesus are loved by God in Christ. So we wholeheartedly affirm that. And if we do affirm that, then I believe we must embrace brokenness and live into vulnerability. 
And just so we are on the same page, I know that vulnerability can be a charged word. So what I'm talking about, when I'm talking about vulnerability is what Brene Brown is talking about when she's talking about vulnerability. And if, if her name kind of makes you shudder a little bit and you're like, how dare you bring up Brene Brown during a sermon? Well, uh, Brene Brown is speaking some truth when it comes to this. And I don't know what you think about her person or what she says on Netflix or TEDx or whatever, um, but the way that she talks about vulnerability is a way that gets at what it means to be human. And when we talk about what it means to be human, it's a way for us to get at, to think through, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because in Jesus, we see the fullest depiction, the fullest revelation of what it means to be human. And so I, I just, I, I encourage you, I invite you to receive what she says as, as wisdom. Um, and so this is her little riff on vulnerability. Vulnerability is the emotion we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. She goes on to say that vulnerability is, it's not winning or losing, it is having the courage to show up when you cannot control the outcome. The love and the grace of God therefore invites us to such a place. See, this is almost like a posture and, and the love and grace of God invites us, almost like holds us up in such a way so that we could, if we want to be, if we choose to be, that we might be vulnerable. And not just like the person next to you being vulnerable, but you yourself being vulnerable. See, this, this has profound implications for how we face uncertainty or even what risk looks like for a follower of Jesus. And, and yet what I imagine is as soon as I mention vulnerability, as soon as I say the word, there was some armor that went up in your soul. There's some reflexes that you didn't even know were there that just kicked in. See, we get into this self-protection mode. And so we have these oppositions that come up. We have these arguments that stand against vulnerability. A few of them would be, vulnerability is for the weak. And, you know, I'm not originally from the Midwest, and yet I've spent a good amount of time in the Midwest. Um, some of the most formative years of my life, my wife is from the Midwest. And Midwesterners breed this thing in. It's the idea of a stiff upper lip stiff upper lip, <laughs> this kind of like keep calm and carry on, unflustered, unflappable, just like let's get it done, come what will mentality. And so if vulnerability is for the weak and you can't be weak because that's wrong, then you just avoid vulnerability. You, you avoid having your heart open to others by calling it weakness. Or we do something a little bit more sly, I think, than that. We object by saying, well, vulnerability is just not for me. So you don't deny it altogether, calling it weakness and, and recasting it as something else. You just say, oh, it's just not for me. Or, or maybe a bit more pointed, like, I don't do vulnerability. And this is pretty matter of fact. Like, you've situated yourself outside of that. Like, that's just something not for you. And this functionally says, I've got this. And this is, this is super American like super individualistic. And you may like, and I, I say this all the time. <laughs> you know why? Because it's hard to trust people. I, I was uh, talking with one of the people who call Gateway home and she was saying that uh, doing group projects, she'll just do it. 
And it was so interesting just to hear that being unpacked because this whole idea of saying, I've got this, you know, there's multiple motives and I can't parse the motives, but for her to just say, I've got this is implicitly to say, I don't trust you to have it. <laughs> or that if we do it together, it might go badly. And I have, to, I have to present this in such a way because my reputation is on the line. So I don't do vulnerability because I have an agenda for my life and you might mess it up. So I've, I've got this. Or I can go through this, whatever it may be, by myself. Or we just simply say, if there's no trust, there's no vulnerability. But the challenge is um, that that sounds really noble and it's really silly. Because trust comes with risk. Like it's these little incremental steps toward one another whereby we cultivate trust. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like cultivating relational capital where we're trying to like objectify people and then uh, leverage that capital. Those are ways of, of talking about relationships that have to do with money and manipulation and that's not the way of Jesus. What I'm talking about is like actually seeing people and moving toward them, opening up your heart a little bit, that's risky. And so we say, well, if there's no trust, then I won't be vulnerable. And essentially you're saying, I won't be vulnerable because <laughs> I can't trust people. I can't really trust anyone. And therefore I can't actually be vulnerable to share the stuff that's going on in my life or my heart. And a life without vulnerability, it is a life of isolation. And I imagine most of us have experienced this, maybe some of us in long, long stints of our life and some of us in moments that burn deeply in our soul. But a life of vulnerability is a life of isolation. Excuse me, a life without vulnerability is a life of isolation. And in that place, we are like caught up in and caught by our brokenness. It is actually what defines us in that season in that position. And this is the opposite of what God invites us to with Jesus. I think that we see this pretty clearly in Philippians 2. So go ahead and turn there with me. Philippians 2, we're going to read from verse 5 to 11. And this is what we read. I'm reading out of the NIV here. Philippians 2, 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then Paul will go on to describe what is that mindset. Verse 6 who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he, Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that every, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is just a simply like a beautiful passage. And one theological writer, Michael Gorman, he thinks about this passage as the central passage for the author of this. And the author is the Apostle Paul. And he would, would think about this when he's talking about it as the central passage. What that looks like is that this passage right here is like a key that goes into Paul's writing and unlocks his pastoral logic. It's the place where we can come back to this time and time again and just remind ourselves, what is Paul's posture? See, if uh, shortly thereafter this, Paul's going to talk about his own resume. And he's going to talk about how he considers it to be dung poop, excrement, like 
he, he's going to talk about where he considers his status is actually with Jesus. He's going to continue to position himself as a slave, as a, somebody who's been incarcerated. He's going to continue to position himself in low places like the cross so that he would identify with Jesus's emptying of his status and privilege. So that is why Gorman is going to position this as Paul's central passage. And this is why this passage is so helpful for us to see what does it look like to be in a place of risk and vulnerability. You see, you can, you can even see some of this, I think, a little bit more explicitly. This is Gorman's uh, translation of that very same passage. See if you notice some of these, like, um, some of these little differences here. Verse five, cultivate this mindset in your community, which is in fact a community of Christ Jesus, who although being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited for his own advantage, but rather emptied himself of all but love by taking the form of a slave that is by being born in the likeness of human beings. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a Roman cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the title that is above every title, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend, yes, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acclaim, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is the universal Lord, to the glory of God the Father." See, notice that in verse 6 there, Jesus, who, although being in the form of God, that is, being caught up in God, the, the, the God that we know as one and three, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a community of eternal self-giving love, this is who Jesus is positioned in, although being in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited. Or some translations you'll have something to be grasped. This is the self-giving. Jesus, in other words, recognized his privilege, his position, and then leveraged it. He, he, he used it. He put it to work for the good of others, even when it cost him. And not even just even, but especially at his own cost. And this is the love of God on display. See, Jesus moves toward our brokenness so that in his grace, we can embrace our brokenness and live in vulnerability with one another. Because when Jesus moves toward our brokenness, it actually says that there's freedom to be had there. See, see, we try and hide our brokenness, shield ourselves and others from it. We, we go to a place of shame and we tuck that thing away never to be seen or spoken of. And Jesus, he looks at us and he doesn't hold that shame and disgust. He, he sees us in a place where we need help and care and love and tending to, and that's precisely what he does. And then that place of love, actually, he opens himself up. That's Jesus is vulnerable to us to move toward our brokenness. So we might move towards our own, embrace it, and then live in vulnerability with others. And I just, I want to focus on this phrase because this is kind of the hinge of it all. And the phrase and this little passage is one another. This is kind of where we'll begin our descent into the whole kind of conclusion of this teaching. See, following Jesus, it is not an isolated or private thing. And maybe that is how you've lived your life with Jesus these past 
15, 16 months. So it's been pretty easy to do so. <laughs> like, if we're just being really honest, a lot of people in our community, we are super privileged to be able to work from home. Um, I know a number of us, have, have that's not been the case. Um, but for most of us, that has, that has been the case. We've been able to work from home and in turn, our relationships have shifted online or outdoors or, you know, they're just segmented. That is not the church. The church is a social body that is meant to live in communion with God and one another. See, Paul does not say, in your personal relationship with Jesus, be humble and give yourself away to yourself, because that would be ridiculous. That's not what's happening, because the church is a social body oriented around Jesus. No, this whole thing is about community. It's about us being formed into a community who looks and loves like Jesus. And some 100 times in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are invited and challenged, exhorted, so essentially called out to do a thing, to align their life that is the whole of their life, every aspect, the, the social, the physical, the intellectual, the social, the emotional, to align the whole of their life with Jesus's life. And this is done through this little turn of phrase of one another. Jesus himself, he, he instructs his followers, that's you and me, to treat one another in such a way that it displays the goodness of his claims to actually heal people. So in other words, like the way that you and me treat one another, it either affirms or it denies Jesus's claim to have the power to really transform lives. See, the hinge of this, the hinge of this is love. Just listen to Jesus's words here on the matter. He says this in John 13, this is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for one another. So we're going to be recognized as Jesus's followers when we love one another, when we give ourselves away, even at great cost, to one another. See, for love's sake, we are called into these one another statements. I just want us to consider a smattering of these from the New Testament. So, instruct one another. This is this one's not too hard. I think um, it's pretty easy just to say, yeah, this is what you need to do it gets a little different because then the posture is is important. Be patient with one another. So instruct one another with patience, you might say. <laughs> Love one another. Carry one another's burdens. I tell you what, I've been thinking through that specific line a great deal this week. I don't want to do that. Like, just to be very honest with you, I often don't want to carry burdens with you. I know that's not very pastoral, um, but here we're teaching on vulnerability, so... Here it is. I feel like a check in my, like, in my flesh. My, I don't know. Like, I just maybe it's a lazy or whatever. I don't like. I don't like that. Like, I don't want that to be in the Bible. And the invitation is there. So this is not a have to. This is I get to. I actually get to do this one another. I like. I get to carry this thing. I get to be a gift to you. And your your circumstance can and is a gift to me if I'll receive it as such. There's this next one. It's a, a pretty well-known. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Encourage one another. And then when people like Paul and his companions, they set these one another's in front of communities like our own, there's an aim. There is a specific aim of our one anothering. It's not just like nebulous or it's it's not flat and static it's dynamic 
it points to Jesus. Jesus is the aim of our one anothering. You hear it in a couple more of these. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How's that going? How's that going in this season where it's almost easier to see life more through our political ideology than through our allegiance to Jesus? I I have experienced some frustration in this place. And this is where it takes great measures of intentionality to say, no, 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 I am a follower of Jesus. This this doesn't mean I'm pro or anti-American or pro this party or that party. It just says, no, I'm situated with Jesus. I'm hidden with Christ in God. I am insecurely fastened into the kingdom of God. Therefore, I get to submit, relinquish my preferences out of reverence to Jesus. What about this one? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. These are invitations. And just consider this. This is quite sobering. Uh, if there is no one anothering among us, according to Jesus, there is no love. And where there is no love, there is no power. I've been wrestling with this a lot. Um, I want power. And I actually think that it is a good thing for us to want power. And continue listening to me because there's an appropriate qualifier to this. I want power. And what Jesus invites me to is the way that he sought power, which is this, to give of oneself, to empty of oneself. That in the economy or the the way of the kingdom of God is to be a servant of all. If you want power, you want to be great, then you're to be servant of all. And so in this, man, you work backwards and he's saying, well, actually the way to receive the powers to enter into love and the way you enter into love is to open up your hearts to be vulnerable towards one another, to have the courage to enter into a situation when you cannot control the outcome to actually go towards someone's brokenness. See, if we're to be known by our love, and the one another's are the fertile soil for sowing that love, why is it so stinking hard to do this? In a word, vulnerability. Again, in case you've forgotten, vulnerability is the emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. It's not about winning or losing, right or wrong. It is having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. And so much of our experience, it is about control. And that that was a statement, not like a rhetorical question. Like, this is true. I think, like, I don't remember the statistic directly, but it's something like we control 15% of what we think we control. It's just like a staggering number if we actually are not in control of as much as we think we are. So this invitation then is about relinquishing the illusion of control, of stepping into a place of trusting God to try and trust others. And at a human level, like it's hard to move toward vulnerability because trust is a factor, because there's risk in trusting people. And perhaps we have been deeply hurt and wounded when we've done that in the past. And so we have these boundaries in place, but these boundaries are more about self-protection than anything else. 
And I think, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to diminish that by any means. And it's very appropriate for us to have boundaries in place and to have relationships with folks who can help us see situations clearly so that our well-being and our care and the care of our community stays intact. So I'm not diminishing that by any means. The, the point I'm moving toward is that this is hard. And our situation here, in this place we choose to call America, makes it even harder. You see, as Americans, we have these things called rights. And to be honest with you, I, I could not articulate the breadth of my rights. I just know that I have them. <laughs> and I would venture a guess that that might be similar for you. To, to one extent or another, like, we, we know them with varying degrees of accuracy. And, and when we view the world from this place of our rights, when that is the frame by which we see, then we enter into this zero-sum game. Essentially, if my rights increase, others' rights have to decrease. And then we start to moralize that. So if my good increases, others' goods have to decrease. And it goes the other way too. So if others' goods increase, mine will decrease. And what this does is is it pits us against one another. It's as though that primary identity marker, I'm an American, fill in the blank, whatever you want behind it, like that identity marker becomes an obstacle to vulnerability itself because it puts me in competition with another person. And if I'm in competition with another person, it's very difficult to open up my heart toward them and for them to open up their heart toward me. See, but Paul's call his, his invitation to the church, to this group of women and men who have claimed Jesus' death as their own and therefore claimed his life as their own, is to embrace brokenness and to live in vulnerability with one another just as Jesus did not consider equality with God as a thing to be exploited for his own advantage, we are invited to do the same. See, what this means is that um, we're going to have to do some hard work going to have to like, identify the places where we have access, where we have access we did not earn, that we were born, and there it was. For me, part of that access is the color of my skin, my eyes, the education I have. That access like, I, I just affords me certain, um, certain freedoms of moving around socially. So I just have to recognize those things, and then from that place, say, okay, with Jesus as, as my new framework of seeing and living in the world, what does it mean for me to open myself up? And if we're honest, this will take a great amount of intentionality and effort. And I'm not talking about like an earning effort. This is more of like a Dallas Willard, that the effort that is not opposed to grace. See, earning is opposed to grace, but effort works in concert with grace. This is going to take that type of effort, the effort that is in concert with grace. And this is like this is like why we're doing this series on emotional health. <laughs> to, to then start to cultivate this different culture in our community, to face our brokenness with the grace and love of Jesus so that we might be open, so that we might move and live in vulnerability. And, and what follows is, uh, you know, like, kind of a, a no-duh kind of statement. But we, there's nothing quick about this. There's no quick fix to this. 
See, it's only the hard work of intimacy through vulnerability that makes a way forward. And this is precisely the picture we get with Jesus. That's why we go to this passage in Philippians 2, because what it shows us is the Jesus we meet on the cross. That is the place where we see Jesus exalted. You want to see Jesus at his greatest? It's right there. It's on the cross because that's where love is poured out at its finest. It's the place where God put sin to death in the flesh so that, so that we who are with Jesus would be dead to sin and die to death with him and by the power of the spirit raised to resurrection life with him. So the place of the cross is the place in the pinnacle of love. And so we look there and what do you see Jesus doing on the cross? His arms are spread wide to receive any and all who would come to him. He is in the most vulnerable of postures. I, I mean, if I were to walk up to you and my arms would be spread wide like that, you could do just about anything you wanted. You could receive me, you could embrace me, you could punch me, you could kick me. I have a toddler, I know exactly what this is like. <laughs> you have this posture, the, the world of possibilities, the, the, like, the risk and the uncertainty, the emotional exposure, <laughs> it's real. And maybe that's making a bit light of this, but this is the posture of Jesus. He is open. This is how Jesus demonstrated his love. This is how we modeled a way forward. Now, just, just ever so briefly, just let's work our way through Philippians 2 again. We're called to have this mind among ourselves. So, so the person to, to your right in your living room or, or your neighbor or the person who's on the chat with you, like the way you're to relate to them is with the mind that is Christ Jesus. And and this is what it's about. It's about this self-emptying. We read this in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be exploited. A thing to be exploited for his own advantage or a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And it's more. It's, it's not just about self-emptying. It's about service. He, he takes that posture of service. And he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He moves toward the, down the path of humility and he gives himself away even to the point of death. And the point is this, that the way of Jesus, the way of one anothering is the place where we let go of our privilege and we give ourselves away for the good of another. And in so doing, we show one another Jesus. We actually need one another to do the one anothering. <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And often we're not the ones we want to do the one anothering with. That's where the gift is. You are a gift to me. I am a gift to you. Our community is a gift to one another. You see, this feels upside down. It chafes against us, it feels backwards. This way of love, and this, this is the way of Jesus. C.S. Lewis beautifully describes it this way. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. 
If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, then you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. The place, the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all dangers of love is hell. That's just a bit sobering. <laughs> See, if, if you feel a bit calloused, by all of this, if you feel a bit closed off, if you find yourself sitting like this, not wondering why you're still listening here some 40 minutes in, if you feel like you're in your own bit of relational hell at the moment, anxious and isolated, just, I, I hear this. That's okay. It's okay to notice that, to be there. I would go so far as to say that it's, it's not for your good to stay there. But that's okay because it is those places, it's the place of our brokenness where God's amazing grace shows up. That is the beauty of what it means for Jesus to be king. He's not afraid of our brokenness. In fact, he moved toward it so we don't have to be afraid of it. And in turn, so that we can open up our hearts and arms to others so that we can live a life of love in the way of Jesus. So we can actually display his love and be known as his followers. See, this pathway of love is going to require some risk. And so I know this is a lot. And this isn't going to happen this afternoon or this next week. But over time, through the power of the Spirit, I, I, I do believe that it will break out. Because we are loved by God in Christ. This is who we are. This is who you are. If you're with Jesus, you are loved. All of you. Right where you're at. And he's inviting you to be more human, to be restored, for your mind to be renovated, for the way you think to be renovated, for the way you see the world. Not so that you stand in opposition of your right and wrong, it's just positioned securely in the kingdom of God. And so I want, I want to do this little practice with you here. Um, because the temptation in our church is to clam up and to say, you know what, you've not been what I've been through. And, and then we just, like, we withdraw. And so I, I, this is our mind. Like, this is, this is our opportunity in Christ. Like, we get to do this if we want. And so I just want to invite you into a prayer as we close. I'm going to say a line and just invite you to say it after. I'll leave a little space for you to repeat. This is known as a serenity prayer. Maybe some of you who've um, been in some 12-step programs have worked this yourself. And it's just the way of acknowledging some realities about where we are and where we're going. So in the name of Jesus, we move into this. So if you would repeat after me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, 
enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world, as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen.